How much do you know about Jesus? How much do we know about Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Here's the most important question. Does Jesus know you? The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That should be our pursuit. If you love something, you pursue after it. And that is the only thing you pursue. All the other things are supplementary to the one thing that you pursue. If you love someone, everything that you do, target that object or that subject of love. You cannot have multiple lovers. It means you don't love anyone. So if you love Jesus Christ, you will have a relationship with him. You will know him. And I will say this, he will know you. This is the most important part because that day comes when you come to Jesus Christ, he either say, good and faithful servant, or he say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I knew you not. Do you love Jesus? Is he your only pursuit? Is everything that you do in life is to get to know him, get to know things about him, his history, his work, his future? Is it your pursuit to have him know you and have a relationship with you? That's what we are going to explore today. This message is divided into three sections. The first section is the Son of God. The middle section is the Son of Man. And the third section is the Savior. Let's come to a Lord in prayer. Give us the grace to fall in love with you. My desire to see the church fall deeply in love with you to the point where we dream, we speak, we pursue Jesus Christ in everything that we do. And may you grow in increasing glory in our lives, in the things that we see, in the things that we do, and in the things that we teach. May you be glorified in your church today, in our minds, in our thoughts, and in our pursuit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Son of God, number one, the Trinity. One God. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This is a reference to the Trinity. There is a thing called the biblical dichotomy. There is something we know to be the creator, and there is something that is created by the creator. That's it. Everything that exists is the creator, and then the created. Nothing else in between. Keep this in mind because this is the important aspect. This is the law. If God is truth, and there's only one truth, then there must be only one creator. There cannot be multiple creators, and there would be multiple truths. If there's only one creator, then everything that exists aside from the creator are things that he created. The doctrine of the Trinity is this. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Now the last summary statement is this. All three is God. That is the definition of the Trinity. You don't have to understand. That is the definition. You just have to take that and apply it to everything that we know. Just like mathematics, those operators, they just work the way that they're supposed to work, and we don't have to explain it. 
You take a rubber band, you pull it, you let it go, it comes back together. Can you explain why? You can't, but you, you use the rubber band. It just worked. So the Trinity just worked. Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The church father called the second person in the Trinity, which is the Son, the Logos, or the Word of God. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity was God. He's not a lesser God, but he's equal to God. He existed with God in the beginning. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. The Son cannot be the Son without the Father. The Father cannot be the Father without the Son. But they existed all in all eternity. So how did Jesus Christ come to being? The Bible said he was begotten of the Father. Just take that. He was begotten. Not in the same way that we give birth. He was begotten of the Father. Differently than how the Spirit came to be and that the Spirit proceeded from the Father. The Son was begotten from the Father. Here's the second one. The Son has seen the Father. If God is eternal, and if the Son has seen the Father, which means that He has seen the Father since all of eternity, which means that there was not a time when He did not see the Father, which means that He always existed. The Son, the Word of God, is the Creator God. In some churches, unfortunately, we equate the Father to be the Creator. But like I mentioned earlier, it would violate our law that the only Creator and things He created. If the Word was not the Creator, then that would have made Him a created being, but He was not. There's only the Creator and things He created, and therefore the Word of God was and is the Creator. Second violation of the law would have been, God says, you shall not worship anyone before me. If God is to be worshipped, we can only worship God alone. If we worship His Son, Jesus Christ, then He must be God. Otherwise, we would violate the first law of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus Christ is worthy to be worshipped because He is God. Lastly, John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How did the second person became man? He was incarnated, meaning he took on flesh. So let's use that term, he took on flesh. God did not made him in the flesh. He took on flesh. He existed before the flesh was. This is, these things are very important because if we don't get these things right, we become heretical. The eternal word of God became the man Jesus through the process called the incarnation. He took on flesh. He became flesh. Jesus is not merely like God. He is God. According to the affirmation of both the Nicene and the Chalcedonian creeds, the word united with the flesh and the two natures become one person. This is kind of hard to understand. The two distinct nature become one person, personae. Let me illustrate this by saying the two natures of Jesus Christ do not share their natures. His divine nature and his human nature do not share the attributes. They don't merge and become one attribute. 
They are distinct in one person, Jesus Christ. They do not exist temporarily, and then when Jesus died, they separate. They exist together forever when he incarnate. A hypostatic union of the nature of Christ can be explained as this. The true nature of Jesus Christ are united in one person without mixture, confusion, division, or separation. To understand this, contrast the Godhead and Christ's hypostatic union. The Godhead, the Trinity, has one nature that exists in three distinct persons or personae. In contrast, Jesus Christ has dual nature exists in one person. Without this assertion, if this nature is not separated but yet exists in one person, it would have made Mary the mother of God. No, she was not. She was the one who bore God in her womb, and she gave the humanity of Jesus Christ his nature, not his divinity. The clarification between the two natures. The human nature of Jesus Christ does not have divine attributes, nor can it contain divine attributes. Human can never be God. Vice versa, God outside of Jesus Christ can never be human. Different essence. His divine nature does not communicate his divine attributes to his human nature. Also, God divinely cannot communicate, cannot give his divine attributes to his human nature. Christ did not set aside nor gave up his divine attributes in the incarnation. When he incarnated, all of his divine attributes came with him in the flesh. Even though they are, they don't mix, they stay in one person. Let's go on to the second, Son of Man. First, he was truly God and he was truly man. For in him dwelleth all fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ bore the fullness of God. It sounds impossible, but this is God when we're talking about. Nothing is impossible with God, Jesus Christ. Truly God, Jesus was God incarnate. The word incarnate means become flesh. He retained all godly attributes in his flesh. So in the flesh of Jesus Christ, he had all the attributes of God. And therefore, it is fitting for us to worship Jesus Christ because he is God. Otherwise, we would be worshiping a human being, which is in violation of God's first law. Otherwise, if his natures are mixed, we would be worshiping a different God, which is also in violation of God's first commandment. He was truly man. Jesus had a physical body and therefore was capable of all human emotions, such as feelings, weakness, pain, hunger. However, the difference between the human Jesus and us is what? He had no sin. He did not, he was not born in sin, nor did he commit any sin in violation to God's law. That was the difference. That was the big difference. Jesus represented what the image of God should be in the flesh. Look at Jesus Christ through the lens of the gospel and you see the will of God for us. That's what he did for us. Jesus did not receive his divine nature from Mary. Remember this. He did not receive his divine nature from Mary. Only his human nature, which makes him just like us, but without sin. Number five, his active and passive obedience. Romans chapter five, verse 19, 
For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one man shall many be made righteous. What is active obedience? He fulfilled the requirements of the law of God given to Moses entirely. Everything that God demanded that human beings should do, Jesus Christ did obey and perfectly kept the law of God. Therefore, it made him perfect in the eyes of the law. What the first Adam could not do in the garden, he broke God's law. Jesus Christ showed that he fulfilled the requirement of the law completely, perfectly, and without fail. The end of his work was on the cross when he uttered the words, it is finished. That was the end of his work toward the law, and he concluded the law, and because he concluded the law in his death, he was made the righteousness of God through his obedience, which then gave him the authority to give his righteousness or impute his righteousness onto anyone he pleases, because now he is deemed righteous of God. He satisfied the law's requirement, and therefore he becomes the justifier of everyone he wants. A way for you to think about it this way. Let's say you want to run a marathon. You're physically incapable of running a marathon. Someone else has incredible stamina, legs, and ability to run not just one marathon, but run a marathon under, I mean, two hours. And she finished the marathon. They award her with the finisher medal. She takes that medal, she comes over, and she goes, I give it to you, your finisher. That's what Jesus Christ did. Now, he had to win. He had to finish what the law requires for him to have the ability to impute to us, to give to us what he had attained. Obtained. Passive obedience. Jesus' death on the cross was his passive obedience to the Father. He paid for the sin of all his people on the cross in place of those who have been condemned by the law. That was his passive obedience. We would have been condemned to die. But Jesus' death on the cross was his passive obedience so that we don't have to die on the cross. By believing in Jesus Christ, we receive his imputation of righteousness, meaning he gave it to us by the promise of his word. And that is why we need to believe. If you believe, then you will receive this promise. If you don't believe, you cannot receive the promise. Luther put it this way. Think about a relationship between a man and a woman. When a man promises a woman that he would take care of her, he gave her a ring as a sign, and she has to receive it and say, yes, I do, for her to have that promise, to receive that promise. In the same way, for you and I to receive the righteousness of Christ, we have to believe in him. Number six, atonement for our sins. Romans chapter three, verse 25 through 26 whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Propitiation means to satisfy God's wrath. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. This is how the atonement work. First of all, God needs to forgive us. That's what atonement is for. So that we would have God's forgiveness. But 
his forgiveness cannot violate his justice. He cannot just say, I forgive you, without there's some kind of, the word of God said, propitiation. Because we violated God's law, someone needs to pay the penalty for that violation. Who pays for that violation? When a crime is committed, the person committing the crime must pay the penalty according to the law. What was the law? You Once you eat this fruit, you will die. That was the law. It was clear. Adam ate the fruit, therefore the penalty is death. Now, here's the tricky part. Man's violation of God's law is different from that. It is, he is violating an eternal God. When you violate someone, okay, when you injure someone, the moment you die, it's over because you're mortal. You cannot carry on payment after your death. But when you violate someone who is eternal, then how can you pay for that debt? Okay, God is eternal and therefore his punishment must be eternal. So after you die, guess what? You continue to pay for this debt and never be able to pay off your debt because it is an eternal crime that you committed, not just a temporal crime. So the forgiveness of God must not violate his divine justice. He can't just say, let's just forget it, which made him a liar, wouldn't it? If he just simply forgive you your sin and not punish you, then what he said in his law, once you eat this, you will die. He made a mistake when he said that, and God cannot make a mistake. So he cannot violate his justice. He wants to forgive you, and how can he forgive you? Man's sin must be atoned to be absolved. First, the atoner has to be God, because the atoner has to be eternal. God cannot put man's sin on himself as God. This is a problem, because who sinned? Did God sin or man sin? Man sinned. Adam sinned. It wasn't God who sinned. So God cannot take Adam's sin, because it would be incompatible. God did not sin, and therefore, who would he atone for? Nor can he put it on an innocent person. One way for God to do this was to make another Adam and put the sin of humanity on that Adam. But then we know by law that it's impossible because Adam sinned. So now we have a dilemma. How can God atone for an eternal sin? Not so problematic with God because nothing is impossible with God. No human being is innocent because of Adam's fault and therefore cannot take the place of others. And if there's anyone who is able to be innocent, can only atone for one person, a soul for a soul. But the other problem still remains. It is a eternal crime. So how do you atone for an eternal crime? The logos, or the word of God, therefore must become incarnate to take the place of human. So you know why Jesus has to come become a man. Therefore, you know why his two natures cannot be mixed. Because if his two natures are mixed, then who is he? He's not like man and he's not like God. He has to be the same person, but two natures exist within him. How did Jesus do this? Jesus, the Lamb of God, or the perfect Lamb of God, is the Father's solution for humanity's sin. He sent his Son to take the eternal penalty because only God can pay eternally. When Jesus took our sin, his payment for that sin is an eternal payment, and he can because he was God. He took our sin, and he can't take our sin because he was man.
It's a perfect solution. Jesus Christ cannot take the penalty for those who he does not know. You cannot atone or you cannot take punishment for someone who is unrelated to you. You can only take the punishment for someone who you know. Therefore, the substitution penalty that Jesus made for us has to come in the relationship that we have with him. Otherwise, he could not and he cannot take the penalty for someone he does not know. Faith is required. We need to belong to him. Last triplet, Christ the Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 6. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then the twelve. After that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Jesus Christ died on the cross in view of witnesses. People saw he, he died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, meaning someone carried his body to the tomb. There were witnesses. When he arose, there were witnesses. So his death, burial, and resurrection were witnessed by human beings. And we know that this is a historical evidence because there were witnesses. The death on the cross, what does that mean? The death of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross appeased the wrath of God and satisfied the justice of God all in one because he was man and because he was God. The doctrine of double imputation is, states this. Our sin is imputed unto Jesus Christ, and he took that to the cross. When he died, his righteousness imputed to us. When Jesus died, he was victorious over sin, over death, and over Satan. Jesus Christ did not pay a ransom to Satan for you. God does not owe Satan anything. We owe God our lives. Buried and risen. Jesus Christ died and was buried in the grave for three days. On the third day, he rose again from the grave and was seen in the flesh by many witnesses. So his death and his resurrection was recorded historically. Glorified, when Jesus Christ resurrected, his physical body came out of the grave and transformed into an eternal glorified body. Jesus Christ did not just resurrect it as a ghost. His body, his flesh was resurrected. All of the stigmata, you know that word, stigmata are the symbols, the holes on his hands and feet and on his side were all there when he was resurrected. All the piercings, everything that happened to him in the flesh, when he resurrected, he carried all those things. There are some sects that said Jesus Christ's body decayed and was gone and he resurrected as a spirit. It wasn't. His body became resurrected. So, the same manner he ascended to heaven with his body, with his human body, he ascended into the heaven. And now he is at the right hand of the Father in his human body. He became the first fruit, meaning the fruit that is newly created through this resurrection. And all those who believe in him will have the same sequence of resurrection. When you and I, we get resurrected, we don't get resurrected as ghosts, we get resurrected in our bodies. So it is important what we do to our body. Number eight, he is the head of the body of believers in Ephesians chapter one, verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. 
Jesus Christ commissioned the church. Jesus Christ poured out his spirit on the believer from, in the form of the church on the day of Pentecost. So when Jesus Christ resurrected, he told the believers, receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when they waited for him in the upper room. That was the institution of the church, the true church of God. Jesus Christ is the head of the, the invisible church, which is the church of the body of believers, true believers in all the world that exist in the past, present, and in the future. In contrast, the visible church, which is we are now here, is the visible part which symbolizes the invisible church. The importance of the symbol of the church communicates to us that there is an invisible church that is bigger, that spans time and history and eternity. The body of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ is presented in the form of the visible church. This is the body of Christ. You are sitting in the body of Jesus Christ, the form of the visible church. When believers in Christ assemble in worship, Jesus is present here. Jesus is in our midst because he's being declared, he's being worshipped, he's being proclaimed. Jesus is here by faith. The manifested presence of Jesus Christ is visible when the believers participate together in worship in two ways. Number one, baptism represents the union with Christ's body. When you are baptized, you are then incorporated into the invisible church of God. You also get incorporated into the visible church of God. So it behooves me to say that those who wants to be incorporated into the invisible church of God never comes to the visible church. It's impossible. If you don't go to church, you cannot be part of the invisible church. So your baptism is nullified. It doesn't make sense. So well, those who participate in baptism, then you are baptized into the visible church, and it signifies that you are now in the invisible church. The Lord's table, the second thing, represents a union with Christ's flesh in the bread and in the cup. We live by participating in Christ's flesh. That's how we live. And the communion that you receive today is the symbol or the sacraments that symbolically refers to you participating in the life-giving flesh of Jesus Christ. Incorporation into the church. Faith is the only requirement for justification. You don't have to sign a document. You don't have to be branded you know, as Christian. None of that. Faith is the only thing that requires. But faith has evidence. And the evidence is to you, and the evidence is to the church. Those who make public confession that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior are welcome into the visible church. Now, if you decide not to come, that's your prerogative that we say to me and to the church that you're not part of this church. You might be part of some other church, but if you don't go to any church, then I would have to say, I don't know. Baptism is a sacrament that signifies the inner union with Christ's body, the, visible, the invisible church. Only God knows who has true faith. Believers must hold on to Christ's promise in the gospel. The moment you stop reading because you say, I have enough to go with, I know that I'm safe, I would caution you, don't. You need to have faith today in the Word of God. The Lord's table is the sacrament that confers the life to the believers. Jesus says men will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The Word of God, we need the bread, we need the cup. That's what nourishes our spiritual body because Jesus Christ's flesh is a life-giving flesh. Number nine, the King of glory. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father who has ear to hear, let him hear. 
Returning King of Glory, the return. Jesus Christ will return the same way that he ascended to the right hand of God. When he returns with his holy angels, the Lord Jesus Christ will accomplish three, these things. Number one, he will vanquish, he will subdue, he will put away all his enemies. Who are his enemies? The fallen angels, Satan, and all of the unbelievers. It does not mean he incinerate them and they no longer exist. They will. It is an eternal punishment. He will destroy death. He will establish a new heaven and new earth. And lastly, he will reign as king and all of those who believe in him will participate, will be welcomed into this new kingdom. Lastly, or next to last, what happens to those who don't believe in Jesus Christ? Now, lastly, the commission. The commission, Christ commissioned those who believe in him to go and make disciples of all nations. That's your job. That's our job. That's what we must do. The life of the believers must continually grow and in grace toward perfection. Christ has promised these spiritual blessings for those who are in him. You will be justified, you will be adopted, you will be sanctified, and you will be glorified.